All right, I'll begin with prayer. Dear Lord, help us as we study Acts. May we learn what your Holy Spirit has inspired Luke to teach us so we can see your ways, what you've done, what we can learn, and be encouraged in the faith that you've once for all handed down to the saints. Help us care for one another and look carefully into your word. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, we are going to Acts chapter 12. In Acts 12, we have the narrative of Peter being thrown in jail. And the church will go to prayer for Peter. And I think we'll find some very important things to learn. And I think as I was studying this and preparing to teach, what was really interesting to me is the amazing way that uh, Luke Acts is written to consistently tell a story that has echoes out of the Old Testament. And Luke will plant ideas early in Luke that come back later in Acts. And we, we remember echoes of it. And all of it echoes the Old Testament. So that's what I want to show you today. Some things that happened in Exodus, some things that were said in the Gospel of Luke, and some things that happened here in Acts are helping us understand that God cannot lie, that what he said does happen, and that God answers prayer. So let me read Acts 12, 1 through 3. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Now when Luke tells us something, some detail, we found as we've been studying Luke X that there's always a reason for the detail. And uh, here we have prophecy that was given by Jesus being fulfilled. And we have um, echoes from Luke. Perhaps, uh, uh, Brian, do you uh, go in your Bible to Luke 21, 12. I have you read a Bible verse. Yes, Luke twenty-one, twelve. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Luke twenty-one, twelve. So here in Acts twelve, what Jesus said in Luke twenty-one, twelve, literally happens. Now this Herod, the name Herod, certainly brings to mind earlier in Luke Acts, but this is a different Herod, okay? This particular Herod is Herod Agrippa I, uh, from, who was from 41 to 44 AD. So that gives us time frame when this happened in Acts, between 41 and 44 AD. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. So there is another Herod who also is instrumental in persecution and killing believers. And they put Peter in jail. Now, when it comes to how things operate in Luke Acts, Behind the scenes, there's always a little bit or a lot of political intrigue going on, okay? When the Romans set up their system, they, had, they allowed for different types of provinces and different ways 
that those provinces could be governed. And in some cases, it's sort of like a franchise system. You put somebody in charge, and if they get it right, then they can continue because it makes life easier for the Romans. And so the Herods were answerable to Rome, but they had a lot that they could do. And the, the ones in charge of Judea had to deal with the Jews. Now, in some cases, there's an awful lot of really nasty, harsh things that happen. But in this case... The Christians, remember we were told they were first called Christians in uh, Antioch, but the Christians were hated by the Jews more so than even the Romans, but it pleased the Jews for the Romans to persecute the Christians. So if Herod pleased the Jews, it made Herod's life easier being in charge of that part of the world because the Jews were who he had to keep happy. So he mistreated them, mistreated. And we'll see that somehow there are some echoes here as we go forward. Now, back in Acts 9.15, when um, Ananias was told to go pray for Saul of Tarsus, remember he had been smitten blind when he was confronted by Jesus. And here's what was said in Acts 9.15. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So Paul in Acts 9.15 was told that this is what he would do. And also we have here Peter being persecuted. So there are foreshadows in Luke Acts about things that happen. Now, uh, Norm, could you look up Luke 9.7-9 and we'll see uh, Herod the Tetrarch, a different Herod, but how he proceeded. Norm, Luke 9, 7. Okay. Luke 9, 7? Yeah, 7 through 9. 7 through 9. <clears throat> now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I have hear so much? And he kept trying to see him. Right. So Herod the Tetrarch had murdered John the Baptist. And when Jesus did miracles, that came to his hearing. And he thought, now what's going on? I thought I was rid of this guy by having him beheaded. Remember the story? He wanted, he wanted John the Baptist's head for his party. You know, if you read, if you think about it, if you look at all the atrocities and cruelties that we read about in the world today, for example, that MS-13 group that likes to hack people up and dismember them after they're dead. Oh, they're all good citizens? Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyhow. No, no, just a minute, though. Uh, they'll do jobs Americans won't do. Was <laughs> oh, is that what they do? Well, here's the point. You know, it really is true that politics hasn't changed. And so back in those days, if it pleased certain people who, whose influence was important to you to keep your job, why don't we just behead John the Baptist? That would be a good idea. And what strikes me is this. This is contrary to 
the Hegelian synthesis and the idea of spiritual, political, uh, social evolution. If you read all the way back to Cain murdering Abel, and you read the history of humankind, what I'm struck by is how much it's the same. You still have data that we can observe in the world that we live in that would indicate that the biblical description is actually the way things are. I was telling someone who's not a Christian that if you look at the Bible, the idea that God created the world out of nothing, that he created humans in his image, that there was a fall and a rebellion against God, but humans are still image bearers of, of God, although fallen. I don't see anything that would make me not believe the Bible. This is a good description of the world we live in. Humans can be kind, compassionate, and I believe that common grace is accurate. There are people that are good citizens that are decent to each other that aren't, you don't have to be a Christian to be a good citizen and to care about your neighbors. But you also see heinous, wicked crimes. You see people with power murdering people because they have the power to do it. You see stealing and corruption. And then you see kindness and goodness. But you see the same thing all the way back to Genesis. All right? So the world that we live in isn't that different than the world that's described in the Bible. And the biblical message is telling us the same thing from Genesis to Revelation, and it speaks to us today. The, the blood of Jesus, says in Hebrew, speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Uh, I was listening to some of the radio shows that we, we did on Hebrews, and I'm really enjoying that. Ten years later, and I feel like I'm teaching myself. <laughs> because there's so much there, and I don't remember it all, and I'm relearning it. How does the blood of Jesus speak better than the blood of Abel? Well, the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus cries out before God for forgiveness and mercy and so on. You can read that in Hebrews. I don't understand why everybody doesn't believe the Bible. Where's this fatal flaw that we have to think the Bible needs to be taken by blind faith because there's no evidence for it? It's just not true. This is the world we live in. Now, in regard to Luke-Acts, critics have to look very, very diligently to try to find any kind of a flaw. And they want to do it. They want to disprove it. So I remember when I was studying this in seminary, somebody came up with the idea that some certain person mentioned early in Luke was actually reigning at some different time so they say but even that they have to really work and there's, there's conflicting accounts that's not what surprises me because people are willing to believe books that are religious that don't comport with any reality they're totally incoherent and disconnected from history what shocks me is that the Bible is so accurate about all these things a couple thousand years later. And the more they dig, somebody said a long time ago, every time they dig in the Middle East, another liberal theory goes down a drain. Oh, yeah, it really happened. Oh, yeah, it really happened. Oh, yeah. How about the Qumran scrolls proving that the Hebrew Bible was as it is way thousand years earlier than they thought. It's accurate. It's true. So this, these people really did exist. They're not mythological. 
the time that these things happen comports with what's known from other sources in history. And there's no reason to do anything but believe the Bible. Now, here we have mistreatment and persecution by a Herod back in Luke, different Herod, same name, but there's an echo there. It's like saying Pharaoh. There was more than one Pharaoh. And John the Baptist was beheaded. Well, here now we have James, the brother of John, put to death, and Peter's thrown in prison. It was the days of unleavened bread. What is the days of unleavened bread an echo of in Luke Acts? You want me to answer? <laughs> Isn't that what the time when Jesus was crucified? The Last Supper, the trial, and so on. So there's another echo. Let me quote Dr. Tannehill. Readers of Luke Acts in the first century, as well in the 20th, he was writing in the 1990s, should be pardoned if they think that this is the same Herod who killed John the Baptist, was ominously interested in Jesus. The two rulers are associated by the common name and act in a similar way, says Tannehill. They endanger God's messengers. The opposition of the one Herod to the Lord's Messiah was recalled in Acts 4.27. Now another Herod threatens the life of the leading apostle. The narrator, that's Luke, will demonstrate the final impotence of this seemingly powerful ruler. Now here's something else Luke wants us to know. Now remember Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So God wants us to know that the doctrine of providence, which we've been studying here in Sunday school, is true. God's purpose is going forward. The battle is real. The opposition is real. The opposition to God's purposes is so strong that it motivates the whole world and its leaders. Eric's been teaching us about the Daniel's 70th week and then the culmination of that and then how there's always opposition to God. There's an antichrist spirit already at work. And we know this. Luke Acts tells us about it. But what happens? This is the big picture. <coughs> the opposition, ironically, doesn't stop God's plan, but it furthers it. Okay? So in Luke 9.51, from there all the way to his journey into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, there is this travel narrative where Jesus is going to be rejected in Jerusalem. And the people, the lament over Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, you stone those that are sent to you. How often I would have gathered you, I'm citing from memories loosely, as a hen gathers a chick, but you would not. I don't want to be saved. I don't want God's purposes. I don't want God's prophets. If you send prophets, we'll kill them. Send more, we'll kill those too. We don't want to hear it. So I'll send my own son. Well, we're going to kill him too. That's the perversity of sin. But the opposition that rejected Messiah, crucify him, crucify him, ironically furthered God's purposes because the son whom the father sent came to die for the sins of the world. Right? And it was necessary because it was prophesied in Isaiah 53 in Psalm 110 and elsewhere what was going to happen to Messiah and that he would be raised on the third day. And so God's purposes go forward even though there is bitter hatred and opposition. This is predicted, and it happens. So now that Jesus was raised and appeared to the witnesses and bodily ascended into heaven, as he predicted, 
and the Holy Spirit comes, as he predicted, and they receive power after the Holy Spirit came upon them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. This continues. It's not done. Because Jesus predicted that there'd be persecution against the church. So Peter, being arrested during the days of unleavened bread, the implication was that at the most dramatic time possible, Peter was going to be taken out of prison and killed. That was the plan. Okay. They were pleased. James, the brother of John, was killed. So now Peter is even more important to these Christians, these people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We'll wait till a really dramatic time, and we're going to bring him out in the middle of this big feast and kill him. And then the Jews will really love me, and then the Romans will be happy I'm a good governor. Or tetrarch. So, uh, does somebody want to read Mark 10.39? Go ahead, Eric. You, you got the mic. Mark 10.39? Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm almost there. 10 verse 39, right? Yes. Uh, okay. They said to him, and I'm assuming that's Jesus. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Suffering. It was a prediction that the disciples would suffer and some would be martyred. Remember the end of John? Yes, go ahead, Eric. And you know, we talk about God's providence, and we run into people all the time. In fact, many of us contend with this. Why does God permit suffering and all of it? Now, those early uh, Christians, they suffered terribly, and yet they remained faithful. And uh, to me, that's an inspiration to all of us. And it's within God's providence that God then works through that. It's just hard for us to fathom that as people. But God has his ways, and we're, we're, just, we're not to question God's ways. God put minds in our—we have a, a rational mind. We try to understand, but ultimately we have to then just realize that God knows what he's doing. <laughs> Believe the promises of God. That's a good point. I was just editing— Oh, go ahead. Another Eric. I'm sorry, Bob. You know, it's just interesting that we just read in that, Mark. Notice the the baptism, how central that is. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Just showing, again, baptism is about identity. Who are you with? Um, just as Christ suffered, you're going to suffer. Uh, the, the idea of the cup that we share at the Lord's Supper, it's about who you're with. You, you do it in proclamation. I'm with Christ. And so all of these means of grace we see here are about identity. Who are you with? Baptism, just as Christ suffers, you're with him, you're going to suffer. Just as he's exalted, we're going to be exalted. So again, just showing another passage where baptism is about identity uh, primarily. So anyway, just wanted to point that out. That's a good point. And this is relational, not symptomatic. Uh, If we were to only go by what appears desirable to outward appearances, it would not make good sense to be a Christian. Because we're not... Remember what Paul said? Consider your calling, brethren. Not many wise or noble or mighty... Okay, ordinary people who are hated and rejected by the world. Now, some would take that as a sign that you're cursed or there's something wrong with you. But all of this is predicted in the Bible so that we know that God's purposes are going forward and this is not a failure. That this happened is not failure. We have to believe the promises of God. I was just editing the radio show that we recorded on Hebrews. I've been working on Hebrews 11, 1 through 7. Wow, when it gets to that, you got to hear that podcast. I don't know when it'll be put out. But it says that God created the ages. 
He doesn't just say, he, which he created the whole universe. But the claim in the Bible is that the eons, the ages were created by God. And as we were talking about that in the radio show, we were saying that that implies that God created everything, including time and what happens within time. And I've been meditating on the idea that we have to be informed by what we do know and what are the promises of God and not let our minds be drawn astray by what we do not know and cannot know. Okay? So philosophical considerations would be, well, if God created the ages, then everything is fatalistic and there's no point in anything. But that's not what we know from the whole counsel of God. And we, in God's providence, interact with life and decisions and history like people creating his image. We can't let what we don't know keep us from believing what God said. Okay? And next week, possibly, I'm leaving it up to someone else who's going to read something I sent to a a listener and reader who thinks it should be read and talked about. It's about this issue of whether such a thing is limited atonement and what do we know, what don't we know. And I want to talk about that, maybe. But I have a brother going to read that and see if it's worthwhile. But here's, here's the point. We, if we don't know, we can enjoy our freedom and go forward. If the God knows what's going to happen shouldn't bother me as long as I don't know what it is. If I knew already whether exactly what fish is going to bite or not bite, I wouldn't go fishing. The intrigue is figuring out how to do it and the potential of failure, as I've said, is part of life and so it goes with everything. And we go forward enjoying it. But Jesus predicted that his servants would be rejected and persecuted just like he was. And in one passage, I believe in Matthew, remember Peter, when Jesus predicted his own persecution, rejection, suffering, Peter said, be it far from you. No, no, no. What did Jesus say to Peter? Does anybody remember? Yeah, you got it right. Get Get behind behind me, me, Satan, because you don't have God's interest in mind. But man, you're not thinking right. God is going to use the rejection of Messiah to bring salvation to the whole world. And this is happening in Acts. Please see that. It's this Jerusalem, the lament over Jerusalem is going to be reinforced by what happens in Acts. Because ironically, this is really going to blow our minds when we get to it. It wasn't just the unbelieving Jews or the secular authorities that rejected Paul and his message when Paul gets there. Now we're talking about Peter. But it was Christians. Remember James told Paul when he finally got there, we've got 3,000 believers who are zealous for the law. They're the ones that turned on Paul. He went to great extremes. You will debate whether it was proper or not. He took a vow. He did all this stuff. And there were people that wanted the kingdom to start right here, right now in Jerusalem. And they wouldn't accept what Jesus had prophesied. But one, not, not one stone left on top of another. And they couldn't get the idea. Jesus told them they couldn't get it. Jerusalem's going to be the world headquarters of the church. The believers turn against Paul. It's it's mind-blowing. Everybody's against the gospel. 
<coughs> we see that in the book of Galatians. The draw, the magnet was, we're going to do it. We're going to have the millennium. We're going to do it now. No, this is not how it's going to be. It's going to go to the whole world. You're going to go before kings and governors for my sake. It'll be a testimony. Yes. Yeah, I think, uh, and actually this is a question too, really. Even, even the disciples, you know, before Jesus was crucified, they thought they were following the person who would be the ruler of the world. They thought that they would be on the winning team immediately in their lifetime. Uh, shades of Joel Osteen, they thought that it would be their best life now. And, and Jesus had to disabuse them of that notion. And so then here, after he's crucified, then you have, then you have James, uh, uh, the brother of James, uh, James uh, John, let's see, what is it? John's James, the brother, brother of John. James. Put to, and so the, the early Peter's Christians in prison. Yeah, and, and so they're st- probably still wondering when are we going to have this conquering king that we're going to be the, now the time. Yeah, who is it that's going to sit on the right hand and the left? Well, these are for my father to say, not, not for now, not for now, not yet. Now the unleavened bread reference. If you've been following Luke Acts, you'll realize there's a reason for things when Luke puts it in there. It reminds us of Luke 22, where the scene is unleavened bread and Jesus is arrested. So Jesus was arrested in Luke 22, 54, on to the end of that narrative. In Luke 22, Jesus was arrested and Peter denied him. Remember that? Peter denies the Lord. Now, after the ascension, Peter's arrested. So the unleavened bread is an echo of Luke 22. Let's, and so we had already seen Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 8. Let's go to the next section. Acts 12, 4 and 5. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now notice how they are absolutely going overboard making sure he wasn't going to get loose four squads of soldiers to guard one unarmed fisherman wow they were pretty serious about this now the word delivering I have in red there is Paradidomy means to give over in aorist active um, participle. And it's used in Luke 21 12. Uh, who wants to look up and read Luke 21 12? Same word in the Greek is used there. I'm close. 21 12? Yes. Okay. Okay, Luke 21 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Yeah, we looked at that earlier. Thank you. So paradidomi is the same word in the Greek, delivered. So this is a prediction that is purposely here And there's a, by the way, an echo of the exodus that we need to talk about as we go on here. Now, let me quote Tannehill again. You might ask, why do I quote these scholars? I'm hoping to engender an appreciation for scholarship. And I'm hoping that some young people at some point hear this and decide they want to be committed to scholarship for should the Lord Terry and church history go on. What really 
grieves me is that the scholarly realm has been taken over by emergent and pop evangelicalism has taken up with pop psychology having a the best rock band in town uh, preachers that can stir up the crowds and make grandiose claims and they just thumb their nose at scholarship when I was in seminary there was a guy that taught personality profiles or some sort of psychology he'd become a psychologist and we had to listen to him because we were students and he was their big guy to bring in to inspire us as young students even though I wasn't young and he said well when he was in Bible college he had taken Greek and that shows that he was misguided now he said that as a joke but I think there was something to that beyond a joke because had he stuck with Greek and technical scholarship he wouldn't have sold all those books and he wouldn't have been popular in the evangelical world by laying aside scholarship and going to pop psychology he became a rock star in the world of the Baptists and the evangelicals and so on who's a rock star in their world for being a scholar and if we give up the scholarship and turn it over to the liberals which is what emergent is that would be a tragedy so I'm wanting to engender a desire to learn and to study and God will use that if I want to know what God said I go to scripture not to pop psychology or to the apostles and prophets who claim to speak for God beyond scripture so Tannehill helped me do that Getting it was worth the seminary education to get his books, The Narrative of Unity of Luke Acts, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and William Lane on Hebrews, and Gordon Fee on 1 Corinthians, and learning how to do scholarship. Because then we know what God said. And it's so glorious, why would you want something else? So, let me quote Tannehill. Quote, the reference to the days of unleavened bread in the Passover suggests another event the exodus from Egypt well let me I'll just keep reading which enriches the significance of Peter's rescue says Tannehill this connection does not compete with the connection to Jesus's death indeed indeed Luke 931 previously suggested a relation between the exodus on the one hand and Jesus's death and resurrection on the other by its reference to Jesus's exodus, exodon in Jerusalem. Now that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember they went up on the Mount? We did that recently. And what were they, Elijah and Moses talking to him about? His exodus. That's used only in Luke, not in the other synoptics. So this whole journey out of Egypt under the persecution of Pharaoh and through the wilderness into the promise of God is suggestive of what God is doing in Luke Acts and it's repeated it happens in Luke, it happens in Acts you couldn't make this up if you were a fiction writer you wouldn't be able to make Luke Acts because you wouldn't know enough and you couldn't figure it all out amazing amazing Okay, back to Tannehill here. Okay, so we talk about Jesus' exodus. Back to Tannehill. The establishment of the Passover is embedded in the exodus narrative and commemorates this saving event. In addition to the date, the first verse of the scene and Peter's two summaries of what the Lord has done for him, uh, Acts 12, 11, and 17, contain phrases they recall the Septuagint account of the Exodus because the words in question, says Tannehill, are common in the Septuagint. It is important that they are not common in the New Testament yet are used again in Acts 
with explicit references to the exodus from Egypt. Thus, Acts itself indicates that its narrator, that's Luke, associates these words with the exodus. So I didn't just take Daniel's word. Now with Logos Software, I can see if he's telling me the truth. So I looked up this, these words that he's talking about that you find here about being mistreated and delivered and so on. One word in particular, I looked up in the Greek Old Testament and found it associated with the Exodus. And I looked it up in the New Testament and I found it's used almost only in Acts in this section here. So Luke is writing to people who knew the Greek Old Testament. And he wants us to remember the Exodus. And so salvation history that's being played out in the new covenant in in Christ and his apostles is grounded in the promises of God and historically is grounded in what God did through the Exodus. And everything that happened, the promises, the defeat of the Egyptian gods, the plagues, the parting of the sea, the coming through, being led by the angel, being brought to Sinai, gaining there at Sinai the very words of God from Yahweh himself who appeared to Moses and declared himself to be loving and merciful and forgiving sins. And the objectivity of divine revelation and all of the promises in the Moses and the prophets. That's why Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration representing Moses and the prophets. And then they disappeared and Christ alone is standing there reminding us of Sinai where Yahweh appeared to Moses. And now we have these same words. Wow. Why are we doubting the Bible? Well, I'm not saying you are, but most of the evangelical world walked away from it. Ho-hum, ho-hum, waste of your youth. You studied the Bible. You could have been a psychologist. That solves everybody's problem, doesn't it? Yes, Brother Eric. Uh, question. You asked the, you asked the question, and I'm, I'm kind of have a theory that the evangelical world, they've, they've forgot, they don't study the Old Testament. People don't study the Old Testament. There, there's just no interest. And, and yet these early Christians, they knew the Old Testament. When Jesus said he came not to replace Moses but to fulfill the law, you know, they, they knew this. Is this what you're pointing out just now, too? Uh, they knew, these early Christians, they knew all of the Old Testament prophecies. A lot of the observant Jews, they... they well, they m- went through it yeah. in the synagogue constantly, especially the Pentateuch. And so it's, it's a, I don't think you could dream it up. I have to believe the Holy Spirit implied, inspired the Bible. I have to believe that. God is speaking to us through the scriptures. And I do recommend you listen to those radio shows on, um, or the podcast on Hebrews. I don't, I don't know what was happening, but it was like right then, right there, we got it and we were saying it. And the recording turned out very well. Uh, believe the promises of God. Believe the promises of God. God cannot lie and God cannot fail. And God has spoken. Believe him. Everything in the world is telling us not to believe, but we should believe. So Peter's jailed and the church prays. Let's go to the next slide. Acts 12, 6 or 7. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, now remember, in all likelihood, to kill him. Okay? Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Now remember, four squads of soldiers. Remember they couldn't keep Jesus in the tomb? Right? They had all the soldiers. And they had to go and Matthew and lie. Or the disciples stole the body or whatever. They, had, they, they failed. Bound with two chains, 
Look at that. How many soldiers in chains does it take to keep one Jewish fisherman in jail? <laughs> Scott. Just, just, just wondering if we have any idea how many soldiers a squad consists of. Four? Is that it? Okay. So you got eight soldiers and two chains. And one unarmed Jewish fisherman. I think the soldiers are in trouble. What do you think? Yeah, 16 soldiers. Oh, 16, that's right. Bound with two chains. A little bit of overkill. And guards in the front of the door were watching the prison. Inside, outside, chained up. This guy's going nowhere. Why did they go to such extremes? Maybe they had a collective, uh, collectively heard stories about previous Herod's problems and what had happened with Jesus. And guards in the front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, we see that in the beginning of Luke. An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light showed in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly and his chains fell off his hands. Isn't that a... Somebody wrote a hymn uh, I think probably based on this only making an analogy. I think it's a Wesley hymn. Charles? What's this? Uh, what's that hymn? My chains, the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off and I went free. Is there a hymn like that? And uh, this is really a good analogy of conversion, isn't it? It's what Jesus told Paul in Acts twenty six eighteen going from darkness to light from slavery or bondage to Satan to dominion of Satan to God conversion is light filling the dungeon chains falling off and going free but here it's literal in a literal prison so there was a previous prison rescue in Acts 5 18 to 20 and there will be a future one in Acts 16. So there are prison rescues in Acts that are telling us that God keeps his promises and that his purposes cannot be thwarted by political intrigue and hatred and persecution. And that we should believe the promises of God. Now it's said here, Get up quickly. Get up quickly. I think, again, there's an allusion to the exodus. Could somebody... Uh, You've got a mic that you can reach. Uh, could you look up Exodus twelve eleven? But wasn't there a reason they had to get it going quickly? Now you shall eat in you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste it is the Lord's passover for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments I am the Lord you shall eat it in haste so what was happening there the passover what is going on here? Feast of unleavened bread. Eat it in haste. You're going out. You'll be rescued. The Lord's going to come. So, amazing, amazing, amazing. I don't know why you'd want to study psychology when you could study this. 
Have they ever figured out the human soul yet after all these years? Is everything getting better now that we have all of these processes out there? Humans are still fallen. There's still problems. We're not going to make paradise on earth. It's easier to make things worse than it is to make them better. Tell the progressive people out there that. Progress often comes as digress. Digress from what's right and true. So he's bound with two chains. And it says, get up quickly. You got to get out of here. So the time reference suggests that Peter was probably there a few days. So he was there a few days, locked up, not going to get out. Church is praying. Does God answer prayer? Yes. People say to me, well, if everything is certain because God knows all things, and like I mentioned earlier, God created the ages, then why pray? because God told us to and God uses means if all the elect are going to be saved why preach the gospel because God told us to and God uses means well if it's a certain way why do this or why do that because we aren't God and we only know what he told us the church prayed chains fell off And the angel got him out. Now, as we will see, Peter didn't even know what's going on. I remember when I first studied this many years ago, I was uh, trying to find my way away from the the word of faith teaching that was propagated by Kenneth Hagin and others. It was invented by E.W. Kenyon and then propagated by Kenneth Hagin and then taken up by Kenneth Copeland and now it's all over the world but their claim that faith is believing that a certain thing will happen and believing it no matter what and then you determine what it is that's going to happen with your words Dick and I were talking about that by the way in our radio show on Hebrews 11 1 and 2 you want to listen to that 1, one 2 and 3 because we were talking about the idea that God, the faith is some kind of a substance that God knows how to use. And if we learn how to use the substance like God did, we can become gods and we can write our own ticket and determine our own reality. We rebuke that in the radio show and show what's so seriously wrong with it. Yes, Brother Eric. Yeah, uh, on the evangelism team, Last week, we ran into a gal who had been involved in, you know, she mentioned she'd been in, she was a, described herself as a Christian. She was having a crisis of faith, a very nice gal. And um, she had been all over the place theologically. And she mentioned Kenneth Copeland and this type of thing. And she couldn't believe the misfortune that she had. How could God let this happen? And so what this illustrates is it's just to reinforce your point. We have to stand up for biblical truth. We have to do this. This matters because there are so many people that are misled. And then when life doesn't work out the way they think, they have a crisis of faith. It's hard for them. Yeah, absolutely. That does happen happen now if you just look at the situation with peter look about what he did know that they would be persecuted people are killed james the brother of john had been killed and if faith meant i believe such and so will happen when we don't know what will happen then how did Peter get out? Because what this narrative is going to tell us is this. Peter had no clue what was going on even after it happened. He he finally figured out because he was sleeping. Did you ever get up out of a deep sleep and not you don't know where you are? Especially in a strange place. You wake up and you're in the back of your truck on a fishing trip. No, that, that would be better than you hoped for. But you wake up and you forget where you were. You were so deep asleep, you don't know what's going on. That's going on with Peter. I, I was in jail, chained up, and I wake up, 
and the chains are off. And then he, does, he, th he doesn't know that it's an angel and he gets out. But then what happens? Let me give you a preview because we're going to run out of time. Here's a preview. The church was praying for Peter and when he got out, they wouldn't believe it was Peter. <laughs> so the people that say, if you don't expect a certain thing to happen the way you pray it, you don't have faith and God won't listen to you. So faith isn't faith in God as he's revealed himself to take care of his people. Faith is if I'm praying for God to give me a job with a huge salary and I, if something else happens, then I was full of unbelief because I didn't get what I said. Yes, Scott. I got the hymn that you were talking about. It's a Wesley hymn called uh, And Can It Be. And, and Can four. It Be. Wesley hymn. Chains fell off, dungeon fell with light. I went forth. And so Peter didn't expect this was going to happen. The church that was praying for him didn't expect it was going to happen. But it did happen. But God uses prayer, and that prayer doesn't have to be sure of a certain outcome. This is about relationship, not outcome. God uses the fact that we love one another and we pray for one another and he answers prayer according to his purpose, but we need each other, we need God, and we need a means of grace. But the outcome here was that he got out and nobody expected it, including Peter in the church. That's my point, yes. I was just Go thinking ahead. as you're describing all this, and this could be totally off base, but it remind, the language was reminding me of um, God walking the blood path with Abram being sound asleep. That's a good point. That's a, a unilateral covenant. Remember the, the, the sacrificial animals cut in two, and the two halves are laid there? Hey, that's an interesting analogy. I hadn't thought of that one. Abraham was asleep, and, and a theophany goes through the blood path. Very good. That's a good reading. That's the idea. Learn how to read. Very good. See, if it depended on us, I would, why do people want it to depend on them? That's what I don't get. Are they afraid that if they totally trust God and his plan, that they won't like the outcome? That God doesn't really have their best interest in mind? That I know better what should happen than God does? I, don't, I mean, I don't understand it. Even when you tell your testimony, they, they still won't listen to you. I recently told a testimony how I got out of the hospital I was supposed to die. That's happened how many times? And I'm here teaching, and the church prayed. But, but so God is still using me by his grace, but nobody had some expected outcome. My mom is here. We expected, we had, right. We, honestly, we're praying for her, and there, some of the discussion, Mom, was, is it, well, the funeral's going to be down in Iowa. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and here she is. But there was no funeral. She's back in Sunday school. So <laughs> my, no, my point is this. It, it isn't about our expected outcome. It's about that God cares for us and loves us. And he's in charge. We're if, if the Lord tarries, we'll all have a funeral somewhere. We just don't know when and where, do we? And so when the church prays, God uses means, and that's the means. Jesus prayed. Oh, I pointed this out to somebody. And Danny Hill saw this. Remember when Jesus was in Gethsemane? And Jesus himself, God the Son, says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. 
That wasn't a failure because Jesus is God. He can't fail. People are saying we have to be certain of the outcome or we don't have faith. We'd have to say Jesus didn't have faith, although he knew the outcome. In his humanity, he didn't desire the suffering of the cross, but in his deity, he was completely committed to bringing salvation to the whole world. So don't let somebody tell you that if you're uncertain of the outcome when you pray, that you don't really have faith. Pray and God answers prayer. And mom, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so she, she's going to go to a great grandson's birthday today. Thank you, Lord, for taking care of us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you release Peter out of prison despite all the efforts to keep him there. The church prayed. You answered. Lord, thank you for taking care of us and that we can pray for each other and we commit everything into your hands because you're loving and kind and we know that you'll take care of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.